welcome to the SkySem podcast. In the last episode, I talked about a huge fraud that was perpetrated at a company called Miniscribe in the mid to late 1980s. It was branded as a quote massive fraud at the time, and the story was spectacular. The fraud was perpetrated upside down and sideways, and it involved so many people. I highly recommend you take a listen to that episode first if you have not done so. Today, I have a guest on our podcast. His name is John Kurzweil, and he was actually pretty close to this fraud case. John is a CPA, CMA, and MBA. He's had a long and distinguished career holding CFO and board positions for companies big and small. John is currently the CFO at Metabolon, which is a medical diagnostics company. At the same time, he serves as a board member for Skywater Technology, which completed its IPO last month. In addition, uh, John is on the board of two other companies, Paladis and Excellus Technologies. And for the latter, John chairs the audit committee there. Um, And John, I know there's a very long list of companies uh, with which you've been associated and I won't go into it here, but suffice to say that you've had a long, interesting, and productive career. Welcome to the podcast. Nancy, thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad to be able to be here today, and yeah, it has been a, a, a long career. I graduated, oh boy, a long time ago, 1978, from Arizona State University. Same, same university where Phil Mickelson's from, who just won the, the, the PGA. So uh, proud of the school, proud of Phil, and proud of what uh, what I learned there to help carry me through uh, through today. So let me give a quick synopsis of Miniscribe, um, the case for our listeners, and then you and I will get right into it because we have a lot to talk about. Um, Miniscribe manufactured disk drives in the 1980s. Uh, it, it grew very quickly. It became publicly traded within a few years of its founding. It then suffered a bit performance-wise, and a venture capital firm uh, stepped in with a cash infusion and installed its turnaround CEO, who was pretty famous um, by the name of QT Wiles. Under Wiles' leadership, Miniscribe went from doing about $115 million in sales in 1985 to over $600 million in sales by 1988. In particular, Miniscribe's operating margins um, was able to keep improving even though the entire disk drive industry by the late 80s was struggling to maintain even decent operating margins. So it did seem too good to be true, and turned out it was. Uh, managers and executives at Miniscribe were later discovered to have uh, been engaged in elaborate fraudulent activities to keep their investors happy and to keep the stock prices high and to keep the bonuses paid out. Um, here are some of the things that they did. They inflated inventory levels by putting literally bricks in product boxes and shipping them all around the world for inventory count. They channel stuff their warehouses to boost revenue numbers. Um, they uh, backdated shipments in order to recognize sales in earlier periods. Uh, instead of writing off their defective units or even fixing them, they just kept shipping them out to different customers. Uh, yes, the broken ones, they ship them out to different customers and recognize multiple sales against every defective unit. Um, they did not write off their bad debt or they did not write off enough of their bad debt. And at one point, they even broke into their external auditor's 
workstations um, and manipulated the auditor's work papers to say what it is they wanted it to say. So this went on from 1987 to 1989 when the board of directors eventually caught on to the scheme and also some disgruntled employees uh, broke the story to local media. Hundreds of millions of dollars in civil and criminal lawsuits. To say that it was a big mess would be a gross understatement. Um, so John, give me a little bit of background. Tell me about how and when you got involved with Miniscribe and, and what was your role? I joined Miniscribe in, in July of uh, 1988. And I, I worked for, for Honeywell for a number of years and, and then I made a move up there and uh, I was, was brought up by a friend and saw it as a, as a good opportunity. Um, it was a high-flying company doing well. Uh, bonuses were being paid. Uh, so I was, I was brought in as a division uh, CFO at the time. And, and with that, you know, my job was to, to understand what's going on in the division, help them understand their costs, and, and really start to beef up the technical accounting um, capabilities that the that the company was lacking in many areas so they recognized they, they needed you know more uh, skill levels uh, such as I was bringing in and uh, were committed to start to do some of that not wholeheartedly but just I, I, I don't know if it was because they were told they had to or is it something they thought they needed to do but they, they did start at that time Okay. And it seemed like within a year of your employment, um, and it, I don't know if this is accurate, within a year of your employment, the story broke that there was something untowards happening at Miniscribe. Yeah, it was It was kind of interesting is that I, I joined as a role as a division CFO for what they called the M8 division, which was the uh, smaller, smaller drive division. And, you know, I, I sort of noticed that I kept getting this charge in my P&L and I couldn't understand what it was. I went over and talked to, you know, the corporate accounting group and was told, well, that's just corporate allocation. You're just going to get that for a couple of years. And from there, I was in that group for three months. Then I was moved to another group. I go, wow, you know, this is fast. I'm just getting, understanding the business. They're moving me. Oh, we do that every quarter. One of, uh, one of the disciplines, and by the way, QT Wilds had some real good disciplines and he had a good control framework that brought, was brought in. It just broke down. And, um, but, you know, from that, they said, oh, we do this all the time. You're going to move every three to six months to a new role to get new experiences. And, you know, from at that point, you know, I said, oh, okay, and accepted a, a role in a different group in the company. And it was outside of finance. It was actually in a, a production role where I was responsible for the, the production operations um, and the bookings, billing, and backlog for uh, a part of the company. So, um I was, I was kind of shifted out, and I think part of it was because I started to ask I, what I call the right questions. 
Right, right. You, you made some inquiries that uh, was not welcome. And, and I, I don't know this for a fact, but part of it is I asked, you know, some uncomfortable questions and they couldn't fire me because I think they were told they had to get more accounting expertise and I had just uh, completed my CMA and had an accounting degree which out in the division structures uh, basically nobody had. In corporate they did but not in the division so I think that they, they knew they had to hold on to me um, for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Right. You were the accounting expert. <laughs> in, some, in some areas, I was. I wasn't, do, yeah. I wasn't in charge of the, the, the general ledger or anything else um, at that point in time. Okay. And um, it didn't seem like you were asking very unusual questions, just normal course of getting to know the business and wanting to understand what is actually going through the financials that, you know, you're responsible for. Yeah, and, and part of, that's part of what our job as as accountants and, you know, financial you know experts are supposed to do is be inquisitive and want to try to learn. And that's what I've always enjoyed about my job is that, you know, for example, when I was at Honeywell, I, was, I had budget responsibilities for certain areas, and I had uh, fixed asset responsibilities. I was involved in, in pricing, uh, you know, decisions and putting together price quotes and all kinds of areas, you know, including cost accounting. And those areas, you know, broadened you out, which it, it, you also have a, I think, an, an obligation and a fiduciary duty to, uh, to make sure that the numbers are right. But through all those roles, if you're not inquisitive, you're not gonna make it. And you know, to all the all you listeners out there, you know, my my wish for you is that you always ask the question that's in the back of your head that you're not sure you wanna ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, in our day to day life we come across you know, it's it's a it's a field where you can get a bit complacent, right? Where you say, Well what what do you mean? It's just what the gal before me did or this is what the guy before me did and it's the way we've always done it um, and that's sort of the reason for doing something but it's interesting that as soon as you start just digging a little bit it's not like an investigation you were just really trying to understand what it is that you have responsibility over um, you get transferred <laughs> you get hey I, I looked at it as hey I'm going to learn something new so I took it yeah, as a right, you're excited. Stroke. yeah that in three months you know, I had garnered the trust of the company for them to put me in charge of, of operations for a piece of the business for a period of time. And I figured it would be three months. And it was. Right. And that is exciting. Okay. Um, now, after um, the story broke, did you stay on after that? Or how, how many more months or years did you stay on with Miniscribe? Or did you decide to move on? Um, what was that journey like? Well, I, I stayed with Miniscribe after, after it broke. Um, I, I did stay. They brought in, it broke, there was a new CFO there the day that the story broke. Uh, they, so they knew it was going to break. They, they had recruited somebody, uh, the, the banks, and, uh, and the investment banking firm was H, H&Q or Hamburg and Quist at, at the time. They, 
they brought in a new CFO. He had had good skills. He was. I liked working for him, and so I stayed, and told him I would help him、uh, work through the process, you know, to, to clean things up. I didn't know how bad it was.、Uh, when you looked at it, the the materiality level was anything greater than ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cents. For a six hundred dollar company, so you know we went back to every cash receipt and restated three years of financials.、Um, after after that happened,、uh, they made me the corporate controller, and I think probably the reason is that I worked hard. I understood what was going on. I had a CMA. I had an accounting background, and I was in a small town outside of Boulder and north of Denver. And you know, I, I fit the bill, and I I took the challenge on, and worked with some good people to help, you know, pull it together and and restate the financials for three years in a nine-month period. Did they give you a team, like an outside consultant team, to do this, or did you do it with your existing accounting team, or did you hire a new? Um, new staff to do so、uh, to go through that well, restatement exercise. Well, we they basically, you know, we, we anybody who had their fingers in it、um, that were known at the time uh, was uh, relieved of their duties and let go. And there were there were a lot of good people there that、um, understood what was how to get things done. And, and to work hard to to get it done. So it was basically the team that was there. It was real difficult recruiting because who was going to come into a company in a small town、um, that's that's way out? At the time, it was way out, and I had a hard time recruiting people. So、uh, you make do with what you have. Yeah. Wow. And how long did that take to look at transactions over、um, pretty much a hundred dollars and up, and then do that restatement with the team that you have? I, I remember real well that I basically had two days off in a nine-month period.、Uh, I had Thanksgiving Day and Christmas Day off.、Um, so it was it was every day, and there were times when I would I'd come home in time. To to shower, change my clothes, and go back again、uh, for the next day,、um, because there was just so much to go do, and you had to get it done. So it was、uh, it was very stressful time.、Um, and then shortly, one good thing about it though is that immediately after that was done,、um, you know, from my experience standpoint. The the company went into bankruptcy,、uh, so I got to deal with dip financing or debtor in possession financing.、Uh, then we the company was sold through the bankruptcy courts to a company called Maxstore.、Uh, I stayed on with Maxstore and I studied for the CPA exam and passed the CPA exam the first time through.、Uh, 
and you, wow. you really learn your accounting when you're going back restating every account, you know, for uh, for a three-year period. And this is the time when the CPA exam is, you got to pass all four parts in one shot, right? You don't like take right. it one part at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Ex- yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's a little um, bit different than today, but it was, it was one, it was, a, it was good experience, but it was a terrible experience. And yeah. part of it, I looked at it and I probably put more weight on me than I, I should have is that, you know, there were a lot of good people at that company and a lot of people had nothing to do with this. And there were families in that town that were that were destroyed. Marriages were destroyed. You know, the kids went separate ways. You know, and you know the the devastation. I call it devastation from the fraud. It hit the entire town because it, the business went down. You know, some businesses, local businesses, went under that had nothing to do with it. It's just that the business dried up. Right, their uh, suppliers. Wow. So, when there's a, a fraud like that, it's not just somebody doing something for their own gain. And when it's uncovered, there's there's other people who tangentially are affected by it. That it destroys right. their lives, and they had nothing to do with it. And I took it on myself. I, I couldn't. Um, I couldn't reconcile not doing everything I could to get this thing done as fast as possible to get things back to normal as fast as possible for people. You know, um, and I don't know, I, I think just by being that environment, maybe you do have a perspective. And one thing that really struck me was how, I mean, this fraud was really spectacular in a sense that it involved so many people and areas. Because I read a lot of fraud cases um, in my research where it's just the senior management or it's just one or two bad apple stealing. But this concealment was, a, it, it, it's elaborate. Management was involved, salespeople, the shipping people, operational. Um, do, do you have a perspective on how all these folks can be involved? You know, I'm sure there's some innocent bystanders just not really even understanding what's going on, but there must be people in all these areas who knew exactly what's going on, knowing that it's not right, and no one said anything for two years, maybe more than that. I mean, is it just about the bonuses that are keeping people from speaking up, or were there pressures from their peer or management, or you know, maybe it didn't feel wrong at the time? I don't. Uh, what, what's your perspective on on this phenomenon? Well, what what I think happened, you know, with with some of the people, and and by the way, the people who were involved, um, I I knew beforehand. Uh, I didn't know them after, um, so I didn't get a chance to talk to them afterwards. Um, I'm not sure I would want to. The the location of Miniscribe was in a town called Longmont. And Longmont was about, I don't know, 25-minute drive from Boulder. From downtown Denver, it's like a 40-minute drive. Um, it was a small town. And if you go outside the boundaries of Longmont, you know, you were in fields. So you were, you're in a small little town. And I think that 
you know, when I looked at the parking lot and I went up to interview, there were really, really nice cars. I mean, it was to the point where <laughs> secretaries that were, were driving and, and admin were driving cars that I could not afford. Okay. Uh, as I was coming in. And it's not that, you know, I, I don't want to distinguish on a class or anything like that, but it's like when you when you see people that have that kind of wealth, it, it does things to you. And it's not just the cars, it was bigger houses, you know, that were being built, uh, larger mortgages, and, and others. And I think it did get down to, they didn't want to acknowledge it and came up with an elaborate scheme to, to cover it up because of the bonuses and also because of the, the drive of QT Wiles and the fear of, of, of being fired and having no place to go because you're in the middle of a small town and you have those big debts and expensive habits. So I, there, there was an awful lot of pressure on an awful lot of people, you know, to, to make it happen. And they were good salespeople. They were. And I think part of it is they sold, yep, this happened. And, you know, we have a fix in place and we're going to get through this. Okay. But it, it didn't, didn't quite happen because the market turned down a little bit and then they couldn't cover uh, cover the problem. By the way, it, it all started with a, an, an inventory issue where there was a, a change made to a to the inventory costing system and it, it wasn't a malicious, I don't believe from talking with the people who were still there, it wasn't a malicious uh how to say it, a malicious act to make the financials look better. It was just an error. Yeah, it was an accident. And, yeah, it was, and then they covered it up, which was the problem. And I think yeah. that, that part of it too is that, yeah, it, it got out in the local paper and, and all that other, and the board realized it, but you know, on the board was the CEO and the CEO knew it was there. The CFO was in every board meeting, and the CFO knew. So, saying somebody saying, "Well, the board just found out," I, I don't, uh, I don't totally buy into, because it, it was like, how are we gonna, how are we gonna get through this? And it was all the fear from, from QT Wiles, to. To make it go away and cover it up. Yeah, and 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 Mr. Wiles was um, not someone who just. This is a man who's had a a, a, a long success record in turning around companies. That is what he is known for. Um, right. So you know, this man speaks with authority, right? Because he's been there. He's able to do it. Um, and I imagine that must be tough to stand up to someone like that. Oh, I have a it, question. It was. He would have. He would have. Uh, they called them dash meetings or quarterly dash meetings and dash, like, he would fly out 
all the management team would fly out to Palm Springs. You'd, you'd stay at the Marriott out in Palm Springs every quarter, and you'd have like a two or three day meeting, and you'd sit there and review your goals, your objectives, and everything you've done. And there were times people told me this, is that you would just have somebody randomly have security at the back of the room, randomly go get somebody and take them out of the room and they'd be fired on the spot. Why? Fear, intimidation. There's absolutely no reason. They're just done, gone. And that would just be the fear into everybody else. So he ruled with fear, basically kept everybody in line. Yeah, sounds like a reality Bullet. show. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a question, John, on the role of internal audit. Um, I, I believe there was an internal audit function at ManyScribe. Uh, I'm not clear on whether they were auditing this. Well, how could they not have been auditing this? This is the entire operational chain. But if they were, they were probably auditing. I guess that's my um, rephrase my statement. Um, were there any lessons learned or any sort of post-mortem analysis on why nothing unusual came out of internal audit activities or testing? I was curious as to whether, you know, if they were encumbered in any way or was it negligence or was it, I don't know, not enough skill or I don't know, I didn't seem like they were in on it. Um, but do you have any information around that? Yeah, I think... I, I, I don't. I do not have information around that. I, I, to be honest, I do not remember an internal audit function. Uh, I do remember some external accountants coming in once for uh, a, a review, and um, but uh, to say they had a, an ongoing internal audit function, at least when I was corporate controller, it was not there, and I don't remember okay. anybody let go from that group. But you know, I guess the lesson that you know, everybody needs to take hold of is that you need to have a hotline and a whistleblower lower line um, oh, that, yeah. that doesn't just go to internal counsel, also goes to external counsel. So there's, it's a, it goes in, no matter what language, it can be translated um, and I think that if that were the case, it would have gotten to the external counsel and the external counsel uh, would have uh, done something because that's their job um, and they would have done it right. But there wasn't one. Was it? Remember. Okay, there wasn't. And would it have been common to have a hotline? I mean, this is back in the 80s and I, I don't know if because right now you know when you talk about anti-fraud we're talking about hotlines right that's like your number one thing outside of um your corporate culture but back in the 80s was there was a hotline something that companies knew they were supposed to do or have done or i'm sure they weren't required to do so um do you know i don't you know coming coming up through my training at honeywell um, i don't remember being taught about a, a hotline at Honeywell at the time. I'm sure there is. I'll, I'll, I'll bet you my bottom dollar Honeywell has one today. So I, I want to make sure this is uh, yeah. current. But but back then, you know, I, I don't believe that hotlines were, you know, in 
I don't, I don't know if you want to say it's in vogue or, or what, but I don't think they were required. And I think it took a couple major frauds to, to ensure that they, they got put in place. Yeah. I mean, even now, even today, many companies, especially private companies, they, you know, they, they, they don't upkeep their hotlines. Um, so I have to imagine that, you know, back, back in the day may not have been as popular. Um, you mentioned external audit, uh, so I did have a question for that. This would be, um, at the time, Coopers and Line Brand. They were at one point fined by the Denver Bankruptcy Court for $95 million for their work at ManyScribe, which even in today's terms would be a huge settlement. Um, and, and and I want to talk about this because I often say that, you know, there is, I think, a, a huge misconception uh, among the finance and accounting world that, hey, if you engage external auditors, then they're going to you know, find the fraud as part of their attestation work, and that's simply not true. They may come across a fraud event as part of their work, but their primary responsibility is attestation and not fraud investigation. So the act of engaging external audit really should not be a company's primary anti-fraud control. However, in this case, um, they were found to be at fault. Um, do you know or think that there were things that the external audit team maybe should have noticed or chased down or, you know, what could they have done or not done that would have helped them um, uncover some of these issues? Because they were pervasive. Well, you know, it was a, basically they, when, when the company found it and found the, the problem in the costing system and fixed it, they knew they had a scope on the size of what the financial issue was, and they hung it up on the balance sheet and were amortizing it like like a goodwill um, or uh, or an intangible oh. asset. And you know what they should have seen was there was this um, this asset hanging there that you know is being amortized and what is it and don't look at the account reconciliation to understand what it is not just what the balances roll forward so i think it's you know and you know you could always you could always blame the auditors at some point um so it's also it's also management on on that that asset side and then you know the other issues like on accounts receivable you know, it was, they, you know, everything receivables were rolling so fast. They didn't have enough qualified staff to, to stay on top of everything. And, you know, it was early days on disk drives, so there were a lot of returns. They didn't have good uh, return controls. So there were a lot of areas that um, they said, well, it's, it's finance is responsible for it, but it's really operations. and. I think that the, the SOX controls that have come in today, you know, Miniscribe never would have had a problem. And so I'm a firm believer in the SOX controls. And the advantage to me as a, as a sitting CFO and chair of the audit committee is that it's not just financial controls. It's controls over the operations. Um, and so, for example, if you ship an asset from from one facility to another facility, it's not the finance guy who's responsible for that. It's operations. 
and they're attesting that their controls are in place. So I, I think that the SOX controls have really helped uh, clean up some areas. It's not going to catch everything, um, just like the auditors aren't going to catch everything, but you have enough eyes on it and in the training and the, and the ethics training that uh, CPAs go through, I think is, is important uh, to, to help keep eyes on it because people are human and they're going to do things that, that aren't always right. The vast majority of the people are, but not everybody will. Yeah, and this um, this case would have predated Sarbanes-Oxley by 12 years or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. more than a decade, right, before yeah. um, Sox was a real thing. Um, yeah, Sox came in, in what, 2002? 2000, yeah, 2002, and I guess it's gone through the ebbs and flows in terms of stringency. I don't know where we're at now. I just know that Sox is still there. <laughs> Um, but, you know, so, John, you you sit on board of both public and private companies and, you know, private companies are they don't have to go through stocks. Um, in your experience, chairing audit committees, sitting on boards, being a CFO, what do you look for or expect to strive for um, for the companies that you have the kind of stewardship over to give you comfort around the governance levels? of those companies or to turn it around if you want to talk about what kind of red flags you're looking for um uh, as you serve these companies you can feel free to elaborate upon that too because i'm interested in the perspective of someone who's at a very high level right and you don't necessarily go and look at testing and this and that so how do you get that comfort or what kind of red flags do you look for well as a chair of an audit committee i i look at the quality of the financial statements what are the financial statements telling me? What have they, how, what do the trends look like? I look at a lot of trends. And if a trend seems out of line, I question it. If a trend... Trends of is, the company or trends of the industry or both? Trends of the company and the industry. So if the industry is going down and you're going up, why? If, you know, the company is going going up and industries going up yeah you got all, all boats rise you know the income and tide uh, but it's it's one where I look at trends I look at what what was the expectation for the numbers to be and what did they end up being um, and then I compare that to what's going on in the industry as well so for the public companies it's a little bit different um, than for a private company I'm on a private company board Paladis that has no revenue today. And and now it's, you really look at cash. Okay, where's where's the cash? Where's it going? Because you don't want to run out of cash. So it's, it's a different uh, set of skills needed for uh, that kind of a board than for a public company board. Um, because you have the public company auditors, you know, on the backside and, and then you have, you keep testing you know, the accounting departments, which are, you know, you know, people deep, you know, a couple layers deep for public companies, whereas in a private company, it's, you know, the, the CFO and maybe a clerk, okay, processing invoices. So um, in a lot of cases, it's not even the CFO. It is a, it's an outsourced uh, temp 
uh, temp CFO type person. Right. Which you know, and they want to do the they want to do a good job as well. So in, in the different instances, you look at different things, and I look for in the private companies. I watch the cash um, because that that tells you in the P and L the expenses as to where it's going, and for the the public companies, I look at the overall quality, the financial statements. You know, the the balance sheet and the cash flow statement um, are two areas that I really look at in deeper um, deeper depths than than just the P and L. And as a follow up. Um, and this is something that I don't have a lot of exposure to, so I'm, I'm very curious. You know, when you decide um, whether you want to serve on a sort of a board in that capacity, no doubt you're also not you're not just checking out the company, you're also checking out the executive team. And um, you know, we deal with that. Uh, we deal a lot with tone at the top, right? Because it's something that you can't see, but you feel it, and that's kind of the invisible hand that drives. What we do, right? We all want to pretty much emulate our supervisors and our bosses. Um, do you make an assessment, or how do you make that assessment by looking at this team as to say, this is a company I can sign up with because they are ethical, they're going to do the right thing, they, you know, have their sort of um, priorities in the right place. Um, how do you go through that process? Well, what what I do is don't you you meet with the company management. You know, you, you spend time with the CEO and, and make sure that, you know, it, it is tone at the top. It's culture. The culture is just so important, you know, for, for companies. Um, if if somebody has, if you walk in a room and somebody else's ego is consuming all the air, I really don't want to be part of that. Um, so, Interesting. so what you do is, what I do is, you know, I look for, how does the the interview team work? How does the board work? You you ask the different board members because you, you also interview the other board, not just management. And coming on from from an accounting side, you know, I always want to talk with the auditor and the audit partner as well, um, and and get a sense for you know what are some of the challenges um, because they're going to be open with you. Because especially, especially if you're coming in as the audit committee chair, the last thing uh, they're going to want to do is say everything's fine, and you get in there, find out it's not fine. They knew it wasn't fine. They know they just got fired. Okay. So, um, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of room for uh, for not being transparent by by the auditor. So I find the auditors are a good source, and uh, and the board members as well as. And the CEO and the CFO, and just and understand one what drives them personally, what's their culture like, how do they operate, and is that an environment that you want to work in? Is one, and the other, and then that's that's only after you decide is this an industry that I can actually help the company become better um, in. So if my my background is typically semiconductors, um, and I'm helping a life science company now. But if I were to be asked to be on on the board of a food service company, I'd go, no, I am not the right person. And by the way, I was asked once, and I said no. 
and they said, well, we're looking for somebody with a, a different perspective. I said, but I just can't, I can't help you, help make you better. And part of it is the desire to help make them better. Part is to give back and be a mentor to the CFO uh, and that team, um, as, as well as, you know, the, the overall perspective of the, the industry that, um, to help that along. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and, and for turning me on to this case. It's, it's so rare that we get such a personal perspective to a fraud case that we cover. So thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Thank, thank you for the, for the opportunity. And, you know, just a, a couple things to wrap up with is that to everybody who's listening, you know, always ask questions. And I said it earlier, always ask a question that's in the back of your mind that you don't want to ask. You've got to ask it because there's something that's gnawing you back there that says you got to know and you need to find that out. Or else you're not going to be able to sleep at night. Um, and you always have to sleep well because you got a busy day the next day. But it's, it's one where where you you just got to know the answer and you got to be inquisitive. Um, but you also have to do it in a way that your your culture statement is coming through. So you have to define your culture statement and get that into you know any discussion and maintain it. So with that, I'll. I'll, I'll Thank you again, and uh, and all the best to everybody. There you go, folks. I hope you've enjoyed this segment. If you're not familiar with SkyStem, come pay us a visit at skystem.com and learn all about what it means to automate and save time during month of close and improve your internal control structure to combat fraud like this. Mm-hmm.